0: For our sponsor this episode, we have ZoomInfo. ZoomInfo is an awesome business and product story that is totally in the acquired vein.
1: Totally. This is an amazing under-the-radar entrepreneurial story. Henry Shuck, the CEO of ZoomInfo, actually founded a predecessor company back in 2007 called DiscoverOrg from his law school apartment. They were dedicated to helping sales professionals find the right contacts at the right accounts so they could stop digging for prospects and focus on closing deals. And then, in 2019, Discover.org actually acquired ZoomInfo, another big player in the business data space.
0: Yes, they kept the ZoomInfo name, and the combined company has grown way beyond just being a contact data solution. They've actually created this full-stack B2B revenue growth platform on top of it. It is super cool. ZoomInfo actually went public in 2020. They were the first real tech IPO after COVID hit. And they have continued to expand their product suite and they've just done phenomenally well it starts with the best business data in the world whether that's company contact or intent data and this data fuels zoom info's actionable insights engagement platform automated workflow capabilities and so much more it is the single best way for b2b professionals to find their next customer or close their next deal streamline their operations and build the best team possible and best of all it is all in one place so your revenue teams can collaborate seamlessly and close deals faster so
1: if you're in b2b and you're wondering how can we drive more revenue and who's not how can we find acquire and grow accounts that are looking for our solution right now how do we make our sales and marketing teams as productive as possible how do we automate our go-to-market motions to both supercharge our growth and save money ZoomInfo is simply amazing. They now handle the full revenue pipeline from marketing to sales, even ops, all based on the number one ranked business data.
0: Yes, customers include enterprises like Snowflake, Workday, PayPal, Dropbox, Unilever, and thousands of startup and growth companies, 30,000 customers and counting. And here's something really cool. ZoomInfo is making their go-to-market playbook available for anyone to try for free, you want to find out how you can use intent data to target key prospects, or how to revive a stalled deal by expanding your buying committee outreach. Head on over to acquired.fm slash zoominfo to see the ZoomInfo plays, and just tell them that Ben and David at Acquired sent you.
1: Yes, definitely. And our huge thank you to ZoomInfo.
0: Hey guys, it's Ben. The audio in today's show is a little degraded since we recorded from Skype, but we're super pumped about the show nonetheless. Bear with us and we'll get the kinks worked out for future shows. Who got the truth? Is it you? Is it you? Is it you? Who got the truth now? Hmm. Is it you? Is
2: it you? Is it you? Sit me down, say it straight. Another story on the way. Who got the truth? Hello and welcome to episode four of Acquired, the podcast where we talk about startup acquisitions that actually went well. I'm Ben Gilbert.
1: I'm David Rosenthal.
2: And we're here today to talk about the Bungie acquisition by Microsoft.
1: And uh, most importantly, we have a very special surprise for everyone. This is our first episode with a special guest, and we have a really incredible one for you guys. Joining us today is Ed Fries, uh, who uh, was at Microsoft during the acquisition and actually was the person at Microsoft whose group... Uh, led the acquisition of Bungie, so we're very honored to have Ed with us today. He was he was at Microsoft from 1986 to 2004. Um, led the acquisition of of Bungie, uh, and among many others. And uh, today he's a prolific angel investor and uh, startup advisor and board member uh, in the game space and others in technology. And which is how we got to know him. And we're totally honored to have Ed with us today.
3: <laughs> Thanks. I, I I didn't realize I was your first guest. That's exciting.
2: Yeah, we we try to keep that part secret. <laughs> now everybody <laughs> knows. guys are all pros. I know. It's good. <laughs> <laughs> um, David, you want to do the uh, the acquisition history and facts?
1: Yeah. So um, most people are probably familiar with Bungie, the creators of the video game franchise Halo. Um, the company was founded in the early '90s by two undergrads at the University of Chicago. Alex Seropian and Jason Jones. Um and they uh made a few games, mostly for Mac actually, uh during the during the nineties, uh, including hits such as Minotaur, The Labyrinths of Crete, and others. And uh then they had their first breakout success uh with a game called Marathon at the end of nine uh, end of nineteen ninety-four and then had a couple of success uh successful sequels and other projects that came out of that. Then you have a fun uh personal history with
2: yep yep yeah actually my uh my dad was a uh, reviewer for the mac users of delaware of uh of marathon um kind of in the real early days before it came out and then as the trilogy unfolded and we actually he sent me some pictures last night we actually have um the uh the collector's edition box set of the marathon trilogy for mac
1: pretty cool and um uh and and so that was that was bungie for most of the 90s and then uh in the late 90s In 1999, they unveiled to great fanfare their next project after Marathon, which was a game that they were calling Halo, they actually unveiled it at uh, a Macworld keynote in the summer of 99, uh, and it was introduced by Steve Jobs himself, Um, and they continued working on it for another year, and then in the summer of 2000, there was a twist. And Ed steps in, and uh, <laughs> and Microsoft, uh, on in June of 2000, announced that they were acquiring Bungie and Halo, and um, that Halo would become an exclusive launch title for the forthcoming Xbox console, which was going to launch the next year. Um, and uh, everything changed at that moment. <laughs> so, Ed, thanks again for joining us. Tell us, take us back to, you know, it was 15 years ago now, how... How did it all happen? How did it come together? Well, first
3: I was also a, a, a bungee game player um even before I started running Microsoft's game business. I, I played a couple games in their myths series, which was their real time strategy series. And so I was a big fan of these guys. I I knew that they did really good work. We we got final approval to um to make the Xbox at a meeting we called a Valentine's Day Massacre that happened in February two thousand. And so starting then, my life was really crazy because I knew that I needed a a portfolio of of games ready for launch in, uh, you know, November 2001, which was less than two years away. Um, Normally games take... And
1: and no developers (laughs) even knew about the
3: Xbox at this point, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, it was was just an idea before then. And, And so... Um so I was desperate for content. And um and what happened was uh one day my phone rang and it was a guy named Peter Tamty who did um uh, BizDev for Bungie, who I'd gotten to know over the previous few years. And uh he told me that uh Bungie was in bad financial trouble. Um they were uh they were running out of money and they were likely going to be Acquired if, if nothing else happened, that they were going to be acquired by Take Two. Take Two already owned a third of uh, a third of Bungie from an earlier transaction, um, and he wanted to see if I was interested. Um, the, by the way, there's some debate about this point because also there, John Kimick was also involved. So there's a, a, a guy named uh, one of our product planners, John Kimick. His his job was to go out and talk to lots of game companies, and so he was also talking to them at the same time. So, I don't know if I talked to him first or John talked to him first, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> Peter called me, t- told me this stuff, and, uh, and, uh, I said, yeah, I'm very interested. I mean, I, I really respect your work, and, um, and I'd love to, I'd love to hear what you guys are up to. Um, and, uh, that was the start of it.
1: Wow. And, uh, I mean, I gotta imagine th- there were, other maybe 15 or 20 or so launch titles for the Xbox when it came out. So, you know, you, you guys uh, did do partnerships and, and, and with with other game developers out there. You know, was there something special about Bungie kind of or, or Halo in particular or um, uh, just that you knew these guys were talented and the conversation started and went from there? Did you have other High profile targets that you were looking at. You know, at
3: that time, if any talented developer walked through my door, I was going to try to do a deal with them. (laughs) Because I had, I had a big pile of money. That wasn't my problem. I had, I had less than two years and I needed to try to get this portfolio done. And so, um, so that was, I was definitely happy to, to talk to them and, and try to put something together.
2: Did you try to do uh, any other acquisitions at this at this time? Was were you thinking about doing like an all first party launch if you could could get it with the, the pile of money?
3: No, we we were always going to do a mix of first and third party. We knew we needed that, and at launch it was about half and half. Um, we uh, you know we, we had signed a deal with um, Lorne Lanning and his group Oddworld Inhabitants. Um, that was probably oh, yeah. the first big deal we did, and that was kind of a big deal because we pulled them away from Sony, who had published their previous game. So. Um, in fact, there's a funny uh, penny arcade comic from the time where um, where Lorne Lanning's talking about how great it is to work with Microsoft and how he's really really wants to work with us. Um, and then in the last panel, he says, "Plus, they gave me this hat made of money." He's wearing this. <laughs> 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 anyway. um, yeah. What,
2: what were some of the kind of selling points for for uh, bringing those guys in house? I mean, what? You've, you've got a lot of different tools at your disposal for um, coming in and joining and working directly with, you know, with and for the company that's developing the platform. What were your hooks for that?
3: So, um, you know, we had done multiple acquisitions before we started the Xbox when when I was running the PC business. Um, uh, probably the, the, the biggest one is um, a company called FASA that did um, Warrior and Shatter, all those. Um but, um, but we never went out with a goal of acquiring a company. Um, our goal was to find the best game developers in the world and support them with whatever way was best for them. Okay. I mean, in, in th- whether it was publishing or, or, or acquisition or exactly. And so in this case, the developer was calling and saying, we're running out of money. Uh, Bungie at that time was a developer slash publisher. They did Bull and that was, it was more common then, but pretty much all the little yeah. developer publishers were going out of business because doing distribution back then was becoming harder and harder for a little company to do. I mean, to try to knock on the door of a Walmart and that kind of thing. Um, Probably especially
1: as the world was shifting to console, right? Yeah,
3: exactly. So um, so in their case, they were both a developer and a publisher and were finding that that just wasn't going to work out anymore. Um, and so... That's what started the conversation, uh, then I got a chance to see Halo basically to see that trailer that they showed at at macworld um, and um and knew that this is something i really <laughs> hoped I could get for us you know as part of our lineup
1: did you uh Did you or anybody else at Microsoft have uh, have any qualms about acquiring a company that was mostly a Mac developer at that point, or was it just all about the content?
3: No, I didn't care about the Mac thing at all. <laughs> honestly, I mean they had done Myth versions of their games, or I'm sorry, uh, they did PC versions of their games, like uh, PC versions of Myth, for example. Um, so I knew that they could do PC versions, and the Xbox, especially in the early days, the Xbox was thought of basically as a PC disguised as a console. So um, I I wasn't worried about them having the technical ability to do it.
2: They were always working on on Halo for Mac before. Did you have to like tear it all down, re architect it for PC, and then do a PC port to Mac later? Or how did, um, how much of Halo was already done when you had acquired
3: it? None, basically.
1: <laughs> <laughs> like, like Which is then. funny because if you watch the Macworld trailer, you know, the, um, I think it was Jason who who presented it on stage. You know, he makes a big deal about this is all running native on Mac and being rendered real time.
3: Yeah, and it's got these wild animals running around and stuff. Yeah,
1: <laughs> and what I loved is is um, they don't actually show uh, Master Chief or anyone else killing any Covenant because I guess probably I could imagine Apple didn't want any any deaths on stage at uh, at
3: Mac. Yeah, well, on. I mean, so. So we, could, we can talk about the development of it. Let me talk a little more about the deal first, if you if that's okay. Yeah, So right. uh, the, the, the thing was, I wanted Halo, right? And, um, and I wanted the development team that was working on Halo. I wa- basically wanted all the, all the developers in the company. Um, and so, I, But Take-Two already owned part of the company. So I had to call up the head of Take-Two, which is uh, a guy named Ryan Brandt. And we kind of had to work out between the two of us how to split the company into two pieces. And so um Bungie was developing two titles at that time. They were right. Uh Oni, right? Yeah, Oni was the other game. Very good. So Bungie had two teams, one in Chicago and, and one down in California. And the California team was doing Oni and the Chicago team was doing doing Halo. And so basically the deal I struck with Ryan was that he would get ownership of all the back catalog. So all the all the intellectual property for all the Bungie titles that had been published so far um plus we would finish oni for them and ship oni um and then the oni developers once it was done would move to Redmond to become part of our team um and the chicago guys would come as well so basically all i got was the halo ip um plus all the developers and he got oni and the back catalog and that was and then between the two of us we acquired the company basically and some people some people think i got the better part of that deal i don't know
2: <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, at the time, though, you know, you make the best decisions that that uh, you feel like are aligned with each of your incentives, and um, you do the most with what you walked away with.
3: Yeah, and and uh, Ryan was great to work with, and he and I did deals after that. I don't think there were uh, any hard feelings uh, among any of the parties involved in the deal. So,
2: cool. You know, one thing that that I, I just totally lit up when I was reading about this last night. You you got a couple of pretty interesting phone calls after uh, after the deal was
3: announced. (laughs) Yeah, well, uh, I you know when I when I did the deal, I didn't even think about it. But um, yeah, apparently Jobs was not happy. (laughs) Steve Jobs was not happy, and so um, I don't know. A few weeks uh, later, once once the deal was announced, um, I got mail from Steve Ballmer, or got a call from Ballmer, or something, and it 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 just said. uh, uh, Steve Jobs is mad about that you acquired Bungie. Uh, call him and try to calm him down, or something like that. I like, <laughs> had this phone number. This phone number. And I'm like, Steve Jobs' phone it, number. It sounds <laughs> like
1: here's a noose. Go hang yourself. <laughs> I'm
3: like, uh, okay, I can do this. Uh, so, uh, you know, so I dialed the number. Uh, how long does it take you to work up the nerve to, to
1: dial those? <laughs> Not very those long, numbers? but I,
3: I had an idea, which was good, which I'll explain in a minute. So I, so I, I didn't just call with no idea. I called with an idea. And, um, and here's the thing. Um, you know, we, the irony of the whole thing was, um, the whole deal started when Peter Tamty, the biz dev guy from Bungie called me. But when we acquired the company, we had room for everybody, but him, we didn't, we didn't have a job for him. Um, and so I felt really bad that he, you know, he was like the one guy out of the acquisition who ended up without a job, but he had told me that he was, um, he wanted to start a Mac porting company. And, uh, and anyway, so I had, so that was in my head when, and so when I got this mail that, you know, I'm supposed to call jobs, I kind of put two and two together. And so I so I call Steve and um, and I say, you know, hey, sorry, I'm the guy who bought Bunchy. But um, but we want to do a Mac version of, of Halo. And um, actually, I want to do a lot of other Mac uh, games. So, you know, I don't have anything against the Mac. I worked on Mac Excel. I worked on Mac Word. Um, you know, um, we have uh, Age of Empires and all this other intellectual property uh, from our PC gaming business. Um, and we would love to bring that to the Mac as well. Um and I know just the guy to do it. There's this guy Peter Tampty, ex-Bungie guy. He wants to start a company to take a bunch of PC games to the Macintosh. Um and uh and Steve Jobs was really friendly on the phone. He said oh, that sounds great. Here, let me give you a guy on my team. Uh, and he assigned me to somebody on his team to to work out the deal and it was a very short conversation and uh, and a friendly one. Um so so it was good. So all of a sudden I had um you know had this deal for Peter Tampty, Apple agreed to fund the creation of his new company, which was really cool. So he had someone to fund his new company and um and we were going to get to port a bunch of our games to the Mac, maybe we'd make some money on that. Um so it felt like a real a real win. There was just one um there was just one requirement from Apple and that was that um Alex Seropian and I uh, show up to the next Mac World and be on stage with Steve Jobs to announce this new partnership. <laughs> so, so I, I, I mean, I, I was a little nervous about being a, a Microsoft guy going on uh, on stage in front of like ten thousand Mac people. <laughs> <laughs> well, Bill Gates had done it before, so in, in
2: very dramatic yeah. fashion.
3: So, but I'm like, yeah, you know, if that's what it takes to get the deal done, sure, I'll do it. So we agree and you know, a few months go by and then uh it's time for Macworld and um and so Alex and I get on a plane and we fly to New York and uh driving in from the airport in a cab, and I remember you know uh, the phone rings, because we we're going in, we had just landed and we were supposed to rehearse that afternoon, and then the event was the next morning. And uh phone rings and it's one of Steve Jobs' handlers and they say, uh, rehearsal's really not going well. Steve's really upset with how, how everything is. Uh, we really don't want you guys to come in. Uh, we'll go and check in your hotel and, and we'll call you, we'll call you after dinner. I'm like, okay. So Alex and I go, we check in, we're waiting. The phone rings, you know, maybe seven o'clock at night. And they say, um, it's still really going badly. Jobs is really mad. <laughs> uh, why don't you guys just come in in the morning? And, and i'm like well the event is in the morning <laughs> and, and they say yeah yeah just show up you know and uh and we'll just brief you right before you go on stage <laughs> like, okay
2: <laughs> okay so oh, wow. we no
3: rehearsal. we're gonna go wow. stand in front of ten thousand people and we're gonna say something for for a minute or so uh, okay so so we show up the next morning and um and just before it starts steve job comes over shakes our hand says hey i'm gonna I'm going to say this at some point during my talk and then you guys just walk on stage, do your thing, talk for 30 seconds, talk for a minute, and then I'll shake your hands and then you're off the stage again. Um you know like okay, we got this. So that's what we did. <laughs> <laughs> so you you guys basically got to wing it on stage. We totally winged it. I I I uh, I haven't seen the video, so I wonder how bad it was, but um but I tell you, I mean, so so those were my only encounters ever in my life with Steve Jobs. So I I mean, it was always um he was always very friendly to me the, both both times I talked to him, in per, you know, on the phone or in person. And um and he did an amazing job. I mean, sitting in the front row of a Macworld watching him, you know, just take the audience and just hold their attention, you know, was was incredible to see. It was it was really fun to be part of.
1: Which is a good uh it's a good segue i mean at that moment you know it sort of feels like everybody you know steve jobs is happy mac users are happy Halo's still coming to the mac take two gets oni you get a great launch title for the xbox coming out the next year and uh and then halo launches and um well we we should you know we'll we'll dive into so many questions about that but um for the probably two or three of our listeners out there who don't know what happened next, um, you know, Halo goes on to uh, the first Halo, uh, has a, I believe a 50% attach rate to all Xboxes sold within the first year of launch, Uh, sells a million units in six months, six and a half million units over the lifetime of Halo, uh, which would be estimated there are no, no hard numbers out there, but kind of 200 to 300 million Dollars in revenue just from the first Halo, but then it goes on and becomes this huge uh, cultural phenomenon and a franchise. You know, I remember in two thousand four when Halo two launched. Um, I was a freshman in college, and like people were organizing organizing trips to the local you know GameStop to go buy Halo Halo two at midnight. It was incredible.
2: Yeah, I, I think I was up for 24 hours. I mean, just the sheer amount of Mountain Dew and Cheetos. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and uh, and so Halo 2 ends up, um, when it launches in 2004, doing $125 million in sales on the first day um, and becomes the fastest-selling media product in U.S. history. Um, bigger than any movie, any album. Um, really, it was a, an incredible moment for video games in in and technology in general. Um and uh and then the the kind of the rest of well, I, I would say the rest of the story is history. Would would love to bring Ed back in and uh you know the bungee story takes a few interesting turns along the way. But um but first Ed, I mean when you were you you were desperate, you needed content for the launch, could you ever you knew Hilly was good, but did you think it was gonna be like
3: this? <laughs> I hoped it were, it would be. I mean, I have to tell you that, you know, I, I wish the ride on the inside was as smooth as the one you paint on the outside. <laughs> <laughs> it was a straight line, right? I mean, uh, I mean the the bungee guys were always incredible to work with, super talented. It was it was clear from as soon as we got them in that that this was an amazing group of people. Um, it, but it, a little quirky too. I mean, you know, like Microsoft, um, just quirky from a Microsoft point of view, like. Like Microsoft, everybody has you know private offices with a door that can shut, and that's like the selling point of going to Microsoft, or at least it was back in the day. You got your own private office, and so I proudly toured the Bungie guys around this new wing that we had just built out for them in one of the buildings, and it was all you know brand new private offices from one end to the other. And they looked at me and they said, "We hate this." <laughs> I said, "What do you mean?" And they're like, "We want all these walls torn out, and we just want a big open bay," and I'm like. Like with cubicles, you know, like that was like the lowest status thing you could have at Microsoft, you know, and and they're like, yeah, yeah, we want cubicles with really low walls. I'm like, oh, you're kidding me. I like, I wish I knew this a few months ago. So (laughs) the facilities literally had to tear the walls out of this place. So the acquisition price
1: (laughs) never before disclosed of Bungie was, was whatever you paid for Bungie. Plus all the two remodels you did to (laughs) buildings. I mean, the great thing
3: about, you know, working at a big company like Microsoft, when it came to acquisitions, the, the corp dev people were so incredible. The HR people were so incredible. You know, somebody like me who ran a business could just basically say, make this happen. And it would happen, you know, and they would deal with so many details and so many difficult, difficult things and facilities people as well. It's like, Make these walls go away, you know the walls would go away like magic, but um so that was one thing, so we tore out all the walls and gave them the space that they wanted and, and but you know every microsoft team has has a test team that supports them, and it's a really important- important part of Microsoft culture and uh and they didn't want testing they're like we don't want test we don't need testing, and, and I'm like, yeah you do, you really need you really need a group of testers. This is the way we build software at Microsoft.
2: Did all the engineers just test their own code or did they trade testing responsibility around? Or how they you know, it's pretty
3: typical in the game business, especially back then. You know, it's like they thought of testers as, you know, a bunch of high school kids, but, uh, but, you know, not professional testers like we had at Microsoft. And so, uh, oh, the other thing the Bungie guys wanted was they wanted Secure access to their area. They wanted the only bungee people, and I, and I suppose me and a few other people could get into their area. So they had these doors that you know only, that were needed card key access to get into. And so anyway, they, they didn't want the test team. I'm like, fine. I'm gonna I, I'm gonna give you a test team, and I'm gonna park them right outside your secure doors. <laughs> okay, so they're gonna sit right outside right outside your <laughs> doors. And what happened was that test team was run by a guy named Harold Ryan. And, um, and the test team really proved themselves to Bungie over the period of that first Halo. They, they showed them what a group of professional testers can really do. And, like, like an example is they built a giant render farm out of a, a, a big pile of Xboxes. And the render farm brought the time to build, to make a new build of Halo down from, I don't know, eight hours to a half an hour or something like that. Um, so, it, it, you know so the next between halo one and halo two they moved that wall that secure wall (laughs) to the side of the testers so that now the testers were part of the family so
2: (laughs) how's that how's that for tangible success and and
1: and you still even even with the addition of testers though i mean one of the things that i think is um so incredible about bungie is later on in bungie's history in in 2007 it ends up getting re-spun out from microsoft and uh when that happened, there were only 120 people working there, I think, including the testers. Yeah. I mean, do, you, do you know who the president incredible. of
3: Bungie is right now? Harold Ryan. <laughs> yeah, oh, really? about that? That's yeah. awesome. Embracing <laughs> testing. So anyway, um, so that's a story for you. Um When, when we first started showing Halo around, uh, to the game press, um, there was a lot of skepticism. Um, they, you know, they were wary about Microsoft entering, uh, the console business to begin with. They thought we really didn't understand console games, which was true. And then we're really excited to show them a first-person shooter, which is a PC genre, you know, uh, looks like a PC game and um they're like you know this isn't mario this isn't sonic you know this is just proof you guys don't get it um so we got a lot of pushback from the press uh actually um e3 2001 uh we, we we only had half speed graphics cards in the in the machines that we had at that time and so it didn't show that well in the show floor there was more kind of rumbling in the press um there's there's penny arcade uh, comics from that time where the penny arcade guys are really down on the game. Um, I, I, I don't know if I can swear on your pa- podcast, but one of them just says Halo is shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and so and so coming into launch, it was very unclear whether Halo was going to be um, our hit title. I mean, we you know we we're all playing it. Uh, you know after hours and saying you know is this game as good as we think it is because this this seems amazing um but we're kind of all pc gamers you know and we're well maybe we're drinking our own kool-aid here you know maybe console gamers won't want this kind of a game
2: did you have to in preparing for the launch establish what was going to be your flagship game for varying marketing channels and and the way that you're talking about the platform and what you're showing off or did that sort of organically fall out after you released no
3: absolutely we did we you know because we had a certain uh marketing budget and probably the biggest thing we had to decide was which titles were going to get tv um and, and the tv budgets you know we could afford to do tv for just a couple titles um and so um Oddworld and halo ended up getting uh, basically equal treatment at launch with big tv campaigns from us um, and you know Oddworld was kind of our well this is a developer's known to console world. Uh you know, I, I should say the game the game was called Munch's Odyssey. Uh Oddworld's a company, but um you know, so that and then Halo, I mean that's kind of the way we're we're sort of not sure, you know, which of these games is gonna it's gonna do best Yeah.
2: For us. Yeah, still not sure.
3: <laughs> <laughs> <If I'm laughs>
2: in, in in sort of that like early launch stage like that, it, how do you know, and how fast do you know which of those two is going well, to? Well, once things later? start to sell, and you know reviewers
3: get their hands on it, it becomes becomes clear really quickly. But especially back in in those days, there were there were a lot of things that um, had a lot of lag when it came to marketing. So you know, any, anything that was in print, for example, you know, it was maybe a three month delay. Uh, if you wanted to be in um, in mailers, or not not mailers, but um, like uh, say like a Christmas catalog that gets inserted and inserted into um, newspapers and stuff like that, uh, magazines, it was all like three months or four months. Uh, so we, we always had to commit to the marketing team three or four months in advance when a, a game was going to ship. And then if we weren't there, if, if one of these circulars ran but the product wasn't available in store, we could get fined, right? Uh, so that was always, that. that was always built into our development process Uh, but it's not like today where information just goes boom out there right away and you can make changes right away Uh, there was I mean there was actually stuff printed with ink you know sat in warehouses yeah (laughs) hard to imagine what um
1: I'm I'm curious I really want to ask especially because the whole theme of our show is thinking about technology and um while there's certainly a huge element of, you know, both Bungie and Halo and and our very first episode we did Pixar um, of just content and creativity, there also is a a huge element of technology in Halo and Bungie and new technology. And I'm curious from your guys' perspective, you know, to me, um, the story that I write in my head is, you know, the the single player experience of Halo is is good. It's great. I'd buy the game, I'd play it, but, what made Halo was multiplayer and, and networked multiplayer.
2: Yeah, I, I remember buying a router specific. Actually, no, I didn't buy the router because I went through my dad's old bin and got one. But uh, doing a router and stringing four Xboxes together in my friend's basement, <laughs> yeah. like, four Xbox Live. So the only way to do that... that I
1: think uh, every high school kid in America did that at the time. <laughs> That's
3: exactly right. I mean, uh, it was one of the only games that you could do that. Or, you know, where, Because Xbox Live didn't come out for a year later, right? and uh right. and so people came up with all kinds of i remember you could hook your xbox to a pc and then people would do the and then do these pc yeah, connections you could over install the internet. software yeah. on your pc uh but it was all like yeah handmade and um how much did you guys either
1: a well both a think about that beforehand in terms of this incredible uh experience of playing with your friends but then b how much how much did that shape the eventual launch of Xbox Live and, and Halo 2, you know, being the I, to my mind that first real triple A style fully realized experience of what playing with other people and your friends anytime you wanted
3: could yeah, be. So, um, I mean a few things. It's it's amazing how much that team accomplished in less than 2 years. I mean, that is not very much time in a game business and you know, not only did they have the single player, but they had they had multiplayer, but they also had sp- split-screen split multiplayer, they had network multiplayer, they also yep. had split-screen co-op play, which if you don't even have split-screen co-op play in Halo 5, it just, just ships. You know? Yeah, controversially. <laughs> so, I mean, it was amazing what was in that first game, but yeah, um, after they shipped um, Halo 1, then um, working, on, working with the Xbox Live team um, helping them develop Halo, uh, or help, helping them develop Xbox Live, and develop how games would work on Xbox Live, that was that was a big thing for the Halo team. Uh, they worked really closely with Xbox Live. Uh, tons of Halo fans on the Xbox Live side, so they really wanted to work with the Bungie guys. Um, and, uh, you know, it was a very mutual respect experience there. You know, the process, Halo wasn't due for, uh, you know, a few more years. Halo 2 wasn't due for a few more years, and I can talk a little about that and um, what happened there. So somebody reminded me the other day that actually the first Xbox Live title that we launched with our first-party group was actually out of that of that Facet team that I mentioned earlier, and it was a, a Mech Commander uh, was was the first one. But anyway, meanwhile the Bungie guys are go, go off after shipping Halo One, and and a couple things happen. Jason Jones, who's you know just the creative genius behind everything Bungie, um, decides he's going to. Um, Leave the, the Halo team and start a new project. And so he and a small group go, go off on the side and they start to work on this new project. Meanwhile, the, the Halo guys, the main Halo team starts working on Halo 2. Um, and they get, uh, a couple of years into it and it's kind of going off the rails without Jason <laughs> running it. Um, so Jason comes back and he looks at it and uh, this is about a, a year before it was supposed to ship and he's very unhappy with it and, um, and the team has a lot of problems they tried to do too many things technically they tried to do this new lighting model that really didn't work I mean I, I love you guys tell this story like it's so nice and smooth and Halo 1 came out and Halo 2 you know for me it was like this nightmare You know, it's like Halo 2 it's all screwed up you know And then um, Jason comes back and he's like, I can fix this. And he he goes through and just like, you know, redoes a whole big part of Halo 2. Um, But in order to do it, he needs a whole nother year. So it's going to, instead of being out in 2003, it's going to be out in 2004. And uh, so I have to go to Robbie, my boss, and tell him he's not going to have Halo 2 until 2004 and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, (laughs) it's not, not my favorite memories, but. I'm glad, I'm glad you liked the game when it came out. So, uh, so yeah, anyway, that was, uh, you know, Jason got it back on track and, uh, and they were able to bring out a game that was, that was really special.
2: It's so, so interesting. David and I were talking before this about, um, a parallel to a previous episode. Actually our first one is Disney acquiring Pixar and in, in, you know, so many parallels because it's a, um, you know, a, a creative hit space business where, Um, you know, you're, you're doing the, the creative studio work in house and, and putting this thing out and hoping it really resonates with people. And one of the things that makes that process work is the ability to have that honest conversation internally and the mechanisms by which you fix things when you're off the rails. And there's this incredible parallel here to, you know, the, the story of Toy Story as it was being developed, where that went totally off the rails. And, Toy Story uh, 2. Uh, no, Toy Story 1, the, oh, d- oh. the original. Uh-huh. Uh I'm pretty sure. Yeah,
3: I think I've read this too, yeah.
2: We were, where Woody was mean. Yeah. And yeah. they were <laughs> they were screening the, the um you know, as far as they had gotten. And it wasn't fully rendered and fully realized, but the, the story, they had to change the story and rip apart a bunch of storyboards. And, and I think delay a year, because it, it was just like, you were watching the movie, and it, it didn't feel nice, and it didn't feel right, and it wasn't the experience they were trying to create.
3: And they were getting a bunch of feedback, I think, from Katzenberg or something, and it was, yeah, all screwed up. I know, I know. you don't really want to see how this stuff is made on the inside. You
1: know, it's just like, oh,
2: this game is awesome. <laughs> you know. It's all
1: magic and wonder. <laughs> Same thing in regular startups, too. <laughs>
2: exactly.
1: <laughs> what uh, I, I don't want to dwell on this for too long, because it's not... A super core part of the story, and and you had left Microsoft by this point. But um, you know, obviously, Halo Two, despite the the sausage making being a, a nightmare for you, goes on to become the you know the most successful, I think, video game of all time at that point when it was launched. And then Halo Three even eclipsed that and helped launch the Xbox 360. But then after Halo Three, Bungie spins out of Microsoft, um, and and you were gone, so you may not know, but. To to the extent you do, how how and why did that happen? Um, Microsoft ended up retaining a, a stake in Bungie, but um, and Bungie kept working on Halo through Reach and and ODST. Um, but but how how did that happen?
3: Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you what I understand about the story, and and you know everything up till now I've talked about stuff I was directly involved with. Now it's it's more like things i've heard so uh, i apologize in advance to anyone if i get something not quite right here but um, after halo 2 shipped there was a disagreement about uh, royalties there was some kind of royalty agreement between the person who followed me and the guys at bungie and um, after halo 2 shipped uh, the bungie guys felt like that deal was not followed uh, the way they thought it should be Um, And they decided they would be better off separate uh, as a separate company again than part of Microsoft. And they went into negotiations uh, with Microsoft to figure out how they could split out and do that. And my understanding is Microsoft agreed to let them go go out and become an independent company under the conditions that they do a, a certain number of titles. Um, and and, the, and they and once those titles were made for Microsoft, they were free to go basically. Um, and so they entered into an agreement to do that. And I think that those titles were Halo Three, Halo ODST, and Halo Reach. And so after they finished Halo Reach, they went on to do their new game, Destiny.
2: Well. Destiny. So Ed, one of the things that we like to talk about a lot are trying to figure out and pattern match the things from an acquisition that made it successful, that made that um, experience where, you know, the value of the small company plus the, whatever it was that the big company um, brought to the deal, um, the combination of those three things is a gigantic multiple of um, the the two parts and they're separate. kind of a one plus one equals three thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. What characteristics, and you know, what actions and what things transpired that made this so successful? Well, I
3: think – you know, most game developers pretty much feel the same, which is like, I just want to make an incredible game. You know, I want to have the resources to make the game that I have in my head. You know, and and then I want, want to see it have an honest chance to reach its, its market, right? To reach as many people as possible. So, um, you know, if you think about... Uh, trying to do that as a little struggling independent company like Bungie was versus trying to do it under the umbrella of Microsoft that's about to launch a brand new console and has a $300 million marketing budget. And it's going to, you know, make a lot of noise about this new platform. I mean, that's, um, that's a big opportunity for someone to, to, um, have their, their ideas and their, you know, their creativity right along with that, with that big push. Um, so that's I, that's I think what's in it for a, a game developer to want to to want to team up and be part of part of this bigger thing. Um, I, I think the challenge along the way is, um, and, you know, and this is something we always, you know, I worried a lot about, and we we worked hard on is how do you? I mean, one of the things that makes these teams special is they have their own unique culture. Like you know, that's what you should hear when I'm when I'm saying. Bungie wanted to rip out the walls because they worked super collaboratively as a team. They wanted the programmers and the artists to to be able to just shout to each other across this room, you know. Um, And and by the way, if you go to visit Bungie's office now, it's in this giant, what used to be a movie theater, and it's a giant bay. It's still completely open because that's part of their culture, you know. So how do you integrate something creative into a bigger company like Microsoft and still protect it so that it can have its own unique culture. I think that's really the challenge of management that's running something like that.
2: Yeah, and there's obviously a tension you have to manage there between, you know, efficiencies of the the larger business um, and respecting the culture of the smaller. Did you struggle at all with the decision to move them to red?
3: I didn't, but uh, in retrospect, I probably wouldn't have done it later. Uh, we went through multiple other acquisitions over time, and you know, I think, I think the more you can do to to preserve the culture of the company, uh, the better, uh, because I think that's that's really what makes them unique, and that uniqueness, at least in the entertainment world, is is really important. Um, you know, it expresses itself in the product itself. So, you know, I, what I like to talk about how. You know, I had these two two really great teams who worked for me. One is was called Ensemble Studios and they did the Age of Empire series down in Texas. And another, the you know, the Bungie team. And if if you looked at the cultures of those two companies, they were almost diametrically opposed. Like if you wrote their values mm-hmm. down, you know, <laughs> there would be like opposite lists, you know. Like one would like Bungie would be like, We're hardcore, you know, <laughs> and um, and And ensemble would be we 're a family, you know, <laughs> and, you, know and, uh, you know i i don 't know stuff like that it would, it would just be really different um and uh and and, and that kind of taught me that it 's not that there isn 't like a culture that works you know it's it 's like having a culture is what matters it 's not which culture you have that matters, you know having a strong culture that attracts a spe- you know, specific people that fit within that culture and really enforcing it and really making it, you know, that culture ends up just expressing itself in the product. I don't know how else to say it. So, yeah,
1: it's, it's so cool to hear you say that because, um, that's such a, uh, been a core theme of, of our whole show. And, and okay. part of the reason we decided to do this. You oh, know? good. I haven't heard
3: any other episodes. So <laughs> yeah, well, you know, we, we,
1: we talked about, we talked about Pixar. We, we've done, uh, Instagram and we've done Twitch and all of those are where companies that when they were acquired had a very, very strong culture. That's um, so far, at least with all of them um, been allowed to remain independent and they've all thrived hugely. And, and, you know, for us, I think a big takeaway has been um, the importance of doing that when you, you know, when you have a great culture, that's when great things get
3: yeah created. I mean, I think one of the things was we were able to bring um, with those two bunchy teams together though. You know the Chicago team and the California team together in one spot, and um, we needed that I think to get the halo work done. So maybe maybe in that case it was the right thing to do, but in general it, it, it's not it's not always the right thing to do. And then the challenge you have in a bigger organization is what how do you integrate with the other parts of the company that need to work with you? Um, I I had gone through a process of integrating marketing into my game teams. When I was doing PC gaming business, and I and even though the marketing guys didn't technically report to me, they were integrated and sitting with my teams all through the all through the organization. And then after Xbox came along, uh, there was all of a sudden this kind of bigger Xbox organization, and uh, and the head of the Xbox marketing wanted to have all his marketing people under him, sitting in his building. So they all got pulled out and I think it was a really bad decision because, you know, they, they, they really got separated from the, from the teams and, um, all of a sudden it was sort of an us and them kind of thing rather than that we're all working together. We do different functions, but we're all trying to do the same thing. I mean, an, an example of that would be the first, the first TV ads came back, uh, from the agency for Halo. And we showed them to the bungee guys, and they hated them. They really, really hated them. You know, there's a guy running around with a gun, and he's shooting stuff. And they're, you know, and you might think, oh, that's what Halo's about. You know, to the bungee guys, that is not what Halo is about at all. You know, for them, Halo is like the quiet before the storm. It's that epic long vista that you see. And... Realize you're going to be heading there later. You know, it's, it's that. It's the original yeah, theme music. Yeah, it's the music. It's all that. So we had to like way back and try to try to fix this. You know, TV commercial. But that's the kind of stuff that happened when, you know, when there isn't this integrated team working together all the way through, so that they really understand the vision for the product.
2: Yeah, it's it's so interesting thinking about um, just just from my time at Microsoft when we kind of had the the one Microsoft reorg and went, went functional from divisional and where's the appropriate place in the hierarchy to, to separate, um, into divisions versus functions. So with functions being, you have all the marketing people together for all the business groups and all the tech people together for all the, all the business groups versus, you know, having these sort of family units of these separate divisions where everyone's totally integrated.
3: Right.
2: Right. It sounds like um, you know, at least in this kind of creative endeavor space, the, the divisional kind of works better, and and all the different functions need to be super tightly integrated with each other.
3: You know, I was at Microsoft eighteen times, eighteen years. I mean, so I don't know how many times I saw that organizi- that reorg happen back one way and then back the other, and back one way and back the other. You know? it's like the grass is always greener you know it's like one 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 way has a certain set of problems and the other way has a different set of problems and so it seems like they just toggle back and forth between the two i i don't really understand it
1: well one of the things we do on our show uh that, that we really enjoy doing is um three segments in particular that we can run through quickly and ed we'd love uh We'd love you to participate, too. Um, uh, the first is that Ben and I each assign a category to the acquisition. And the kind of five we've identified, we could find more that break out of the box, but the five we've identified are people, technology, product, business line, or, or I guess fourth The fifth is is other wildcard. But, yeah, uh, you know, for, uh, for me, uh, it's interesting. I really pegged um, Halo and, and Bungie as a product acquisition for Microsoft. Um but it's interesting, you know, hearing you talk it, it's really um I think you've given a lot of uh, data to support people as well. Um ultimately I think I'm gonna stick with product uh simply because um more than anything, you know, because of the spin out that ended up happening later on and Bungie going on to um to leave Microsoft and that DNA to leave Microsoft and um and Halo sticking behind as as a product for for xbox what would you say ben
2: i'm not going to disagree i i think it's it's absolutely that um it, like you said there's there's definitely a, a learning from um the, the folks at bungie about their culture and about how to produce that sort of game and bring it to a platform that nobody thought was going to have a first-person shooter like the pc and things like that but um yeah i think my vote would be product ed what do you think <laughs>
3: I'm sticking with the people for sure. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, you know, it's one thing to create a franchise, and it's another to um, to continue it. Is one thing I'd say, you know. And these are the people yeah. that that created Halo, you know, out of out of nothing. And so, um, I, you know, it's true. There's a different team that's that's moving Halo forward now, and um, and and they've added a lot of interesting new things to the to the franchise. But Bungie created it. You know what I mean? Yeah, and then they created Destiny, which I also think is very good. So I don't know. I I just always fall on the side of of the, the people or what, what really matter in these companies.
1: Well, one of the one of the pieces of feedback we've gotten is we need more disagreement on this show. So <laughs> all right, uh, this is great. <laughs> We're going to bring people in that, like you yeah. have to <laughs> disagree with us. You're welcome back anytime.
2: <laughs> if, if David and I keep agreeing, we'll just bring in third third parties that can gang up on us. It's yeah. Okay. Uh, Second to last,
1: uh, second to last segment. Um, this is my favorite. We talk about um, because this is about technology acquisitions as a whole. This show um, we talk about is there an underlying kind of generalizable and broader theme in technology um, that this acquisition embodies or represents? Um, for me, and, and this is why I thought Destiny was a great seg. Um, you know, for me the Bungie acquisition represents the power of whenever there's a platform shift in technology. And that happens very discreetly in the gaming industry where, you know, first it was, there was early PC gaming and early consoles and then consoles really became dominant with, with the, the age of, of Xbox and PlayStation two. Um, and, uh, and, and, and Halo and Bungie rode that success. And, and then, um, you know, in recent times, there's, there's been the age of free to play, the two, the simultaneous age of free to play and mobile, and um, it's interesting to see. You know, Halo is still a huge part of the cultural landscape, at, at least in um, you know the the media landscape in the U.S. But um, the gaming industry, you know, has been has moved on in a lot of ways, and and what's what's big now are companies enabled by this next wave, and and that's where um, Bungie's gone with Destiny. Um so for me the you know this uh this power of whenever there's a platform shift in gaming or other parts of technology the ability to not totally wipe away the the companies and the winners from before but create new winners and bigger winners. Um I think Halo and Bungie X represent that really well.
3: Yeah, I'm I'm going to I mean I see it maybe a little differently but kind of I pick, I'll pick the same milestones as you, you know. For me it, it was the time when, you know, the Bungie acquisition happened at a time when uh, the publishers were getting bigger and there was consolidation among the publishers. So uh, it was getting this, there was this economy of scale of being big at that time, you know, and that Activision's and Electronic Arts and take Twos and Microsoft's had an advantage. And the little kind of mom-and-pop developer-publisher uh, was was going away. Bungie's an example. Another acquisition we did uh, was a company called Access Software that did our golf and tennis and and other games. Um, and um, so there's you know these things start small and then they you know they get get somewhat bigger and then at some point um, you know economy of scale really matters. Scale really matters and then. Uh, you start to see a lot of acquisitions. And and so that that was what was happening kind of in the you know uh around two thousand when this Bungie acquisition happened. It's also what's happening now in free to play. So to follow on your example, yep. you know, I mean I, you know I was on the board of Z two. Z two was yep. you know really early free to play company, um had a bunch of uh, of hits, um trade nations and um Battle Nations Battle you nations. know. Um and, um, you know, at some point, uh, uh you know, skills started to really matter in free to play. You know, if you're going to compete yeah. with, uh, you know, uh, clash of clans or, uh, or Candy Crush or something, you know, with just these massive audiences, and you really want to drive traffic to your to your game, it really matters that if you have this big audience out there. And so it was getting harder and harder for Z2 to, to compete. And, you know, just like Microsoft bought Bungie, it, it made a lot of sense for King to buy Z2. So I think, you know, this there, there's kind of cycles to this stuff, and we see it, you know, over and over again. It's, you know, maybe it's not just one platform shift. Maybe it's you know just a, a natural evolution of each market, right? As some new market comes, you have a lot of little guys at the beginning, a lot of experimenters, and then um, and then change over time.
2: And with that, I'll I'll kind of take us into our our last section where we render a conclusion. Grades A through F, you get pluses and minuses, and I'll kick it off by asking you a question, Ed. Do you think that the Xbox would be the success that it is today if the Bungie team and, and your team didn't pull off this acquisition? I really don't. I, mean,
3: I think I think uh, Halo is hugely important to the success of, of Xbox. Uh, I don't know if there would have been an Xbox 360 if there was no Halo with Xbox. So I think it was incredibly important.
2: Famously, Microsoft criticized for years and years and years of um, you know, not not making money on Xbox and it not being something the company was serious about. And then, you know, where we see where it's gone today and kind of, um, being part of the same platform as Windows and doing so much more than gaming and, and the company really taking the, the whole thing seriously and, and combined with the HoloLens and a lot of other future bets they're making. Um,
1: Minecraft, future episode.
2: Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah, um, really paving the way for the future of the company. So it's, it's pretty amazing to hear how important it was to the creation of the platform.
3: When I went to work on games in in the mid-90s, I I was leaving a successful career in office. I'd been there in 10 years. And I was told a couple things. I was told that I was committing career suicide. (laughs) And I was told, uh, why would you leave office one of the most important parts of the company to go work on something no one cares about? (laughs) And that was was a great motivator for me to go, (laughs) go make games. Uh, be an important part of, of Microsoft, and so
1: I think you could argue a lot more people care about. Uh, maybe not a lot, at least as many people who care about Office care about games today.
3: Yeah, I think I think it's an important part of the company. I'm proud of that.
2: It's funny. This is like the part of the show where I uh, always bring in Christensen, but like, boy, does that sound like low-end disruption. Even in your career, right? You're you're leaving to go and play with the thing that nobody can take seriously, and it's a total toy. And how could it ever get big? And this is the thing that matters and it's the Titan that's been trucking along forever. It's, uh, it's just so reminiscent of, of every, you know, startup that comes out of nowhere and then suddenly nobody can understand how everyone's taking it seriously. And it's such a gigantic market.
3: Well, as you know, I, I'll just say, it's fun to be part of that, you know? <laughs>
2: yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, a plus, I, <laughs> I think I showed my card. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um,
1: Talking yes. off the ledge, David. <laughs> This is uh. This is, we'll, we'll let we, we'll let Ed go last here. You know, I've been struggling with this one, uh, and not just for creating disagreement for the sake of the show, but um, this acquisition. Um, really, any perspective you look at it, you know, and that that one that that Ben, you and Ed were just talking about is such a powerful one. Um, look at it financially. I mean, over the lifetime of the Halo franchise, and there's no way anybody could have foreseen this at the time, but. It's made over five billion dollars in revenue um, just from game sales alone. That's before merchandise. That's before uh, movies. That's before machinima, uh, which was a whole nother category that Halo really helped launch. Um, although Microsoft didn't monetize by it, so you know, really any dimension you look at it, it's an incredible acquisition. Um, the thing that I just you know, that I struggle with a little bit. I come back to the spinoff and I think about what um what both halo and um xbox and bungie what all three of them could have been if um that creative team had really continued being a central part of xbox and gaming going forward and and for many years you know while mobile was was rising and while free-to-play was rising uh halo wasn't part of it um and uh i don't know i think about what it could have been so Obviously, it's really great acquisition. Um, I think I removed the plus because of that, so it's an A for me.
2: So, wait, your argument is that um,
1: I, I argue that there is some unrealized potential here. Nothing against you, Ed, but
2: <laughs> yeah, do, no, do, you, do you think it's because it's spun
1: uh, out? You are saying
3: because they lost it again that they that yeah,
1: yeah you know, in two thousand seven, which ended up being was the 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 very top of the console market, uh, or at least close to it before the next wave was coming. And right then, um, Microsoft lost Bungie.
2: So are you blaming, uh, the Microsoft missing mobile? on <laughs> <them> not- Windows
1: <laughs> phone is a direct result of the Bungie <laughs> spin out then.
2: <laughs> well, even even mobile gaming, right? Like Microsoft never, never had a, you know, they, they had this incredible presence in, in, um, console, console gaming. And like, when I'm sitting there screwing around on my phone playing Clash of Clans or whatever, like it's it's not a Microsoft property. Yep. Do, do you think that um, there's like unrealized potential if that team had stuck there? That they I don't know,
1: I don't know. Maybe not, and maybe maybe um, maybe even Destiny never would have happened within Microsoft. So I don't know. But I look at Halo today, and I think, um, and maybe it's just the natural course of things. But I, I uh, it's not as culturally relevant as it once was. And not as relevant to video
3: gaming as a whole as it once was. And- um okay. Well uh a few things. Uh Microsoft had a right of first refusal on Destiny, so they could have they could have pushed it if they wanted to. So um whether they made the right choice on that or, or not, I guess time will tell. But um just that's just one thing to think about. Um I was probably involved in a dozen or so acquisitions, big and small, at Microsoft. And uh definitely the one that went the best was, uh, acquiring Bungie. So I'm, I'm not going to give myself an A plus, but I'll give myself. <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll,
1: I'll, yeah. You're grading yourself here. I, so. I'll,
3: I'll go with a, because this was the number one, one that I was involved with.
2: <laughs> oh, sounds good to me. And you know, it's kind of funny. Like we, we throw these arbitrary grades around, but it's sort of just a framework for us to get to, to, uh, dig in a little bit and, and think about what could have been or what was unrealized
1: Sure. Yeah. Thank you, Ed. We really appreciate all the time. Uh, super special treat, both for us and our listeners. And uh, like I said, you're welcome back anytime to disagree with us. <laughs> hey,
3: thanks a lot. It was really fun to be part of this.
2: Yeah, we appreciate it. And for listeners, um, uh, we are Acquired FM on Twitter. Yeah. Sorry, this one went so long, but I just got real into it. I mean,
1: so I'm many great it. moments. <laughs> thanks
3: again, Ed. Take it easy, guys.
2: Who got the truth? Is it you? Is
1: it you? Is it you? Who got the truth now? Huh.
0: Well, a huge thank you to our sponsor for this episode, Zoom Info. If your company wants to supercharge its ability to find, acquire, and grow customers, while also becoming more efficient, it is a no-brainer to start using ZoomInfo. And now they're making their automated go-to-market playbook available for free for anyone to try. Head on over to acquired.fm ZoomInfo to see this go-to-market playbook. And when you get in touch, just tell them that Ben and David at Acquired sent you.
1: Thanks, ZoomInfo.